Friends, if you've been with us, uh, we are spending the first part of Ordinary Time uh, in, the, in the book of Esther, in the series that I am calling The Hidden Hand of God. You may know, uh, you may or may not know, Esther is an Old Testament book that is famous because it never mentions the name of God, not once. <laughs> and yet, and yet, his hidden hand is at work underneath all the ordinary events on every page. It's, it's a literary masterpiece, if you think of it. And really, that's, that's what we're doing. And that's what the season of Ordinary Time uh, is all about. It's reminding us that God is just as present and just as active in the ordinary as he is in the extraordinary. We are learning to trust that God is present even when he seems absent. We are learning to trust that he is at work even through the mundane and ordinary events of our life. Like he really is, he really is orchestrating all things for his glory and for our good, mysteriously but beautifully. So if you've been with us, this is our third or fourth week in the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is set in the city of Susa, which is in modern-day Iran, where the people of God are living in exile uh, under the Persian Empire and under the, the great Persian king Ahasuerus, a.k.a. Xerxes I. So if I say King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, they're the same person. Xerxes seems, as we introduce him in chapter 1, he seems to have all the wealth, all the power, all the control to do whatever he wants, whatever he pleases throughout his empire. But we are learning that there's a true king. There's a hidden king. There's a king that's enthroned in heaven, not in Susa, who actually has all the power to do whatever he pleases. And he is, in fact, controlling all things for the good of his people. So far, we've seen that he is sovereign over Xerxes' decree that his wife, Queen Vashti, should be banished from the empire for her refusal to honor her husband's humiliating request. And God is also sovereign over Xerxes' next decree that all the eligible women of the empire should be gathered to the citadel in Susa for this, like, twisted beauty pageant where the winner would be crowned the new queen. And even though Esther, as, as a Jew, as a Hebrew, should never participate in this, she would rather die than, than participate in this depraved one-night audition with the king, even there, God's hidden hand is at work. Because by his sovereign will, Esther becomes the new queen of Persia, which puts her, a Jew, in just the right place at just the right time to save her people from near extinction, we're going to see. So friends, in today's passage, there's going to be another, de- uh, another decree that goes out from King Xerxes to every Persian prov- province. But friends, this one, this decree is going to order the empire to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. That's heavy. This is pure evil. It is radical injustice. And what we are going to try to do today is to ask the difficult question of how the hidden hand of God is at work, even in the face of the problem of evil. It's a heavy topic. It's a hard topic. And we would do well to remember the words of Flannery O'Connor, who reminds us that evil is not simply a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be endured. Right? We, we are not going to solve the problem of evil today. There is so much mystery to the ways of God, but I hope that we will see how God is, is with us, even in the midst of evil. How his hidden hand is working mysteriously 
to bring good from it. So, our passage today is Esther 2, starting in 19, and then all of chapter 3 to the end, verse 15. Would you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? Starting in verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdains to lay, to lay hands on Mordecai alone, So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. 
And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray and ask God to help us understand it. Our God, we thank you uh, for your word. We, we think we thank you for your word. Sometimes when we hear difficult things, but we know that all of your word is God-breathed, and therefore it is profitable for us to learn about you and who you are. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to do that right now, and I ask that my speech and my message would not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our, fi- our faith might not rest in wisdom and the wisdom of men but in the power of God. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Brothers and sisters, I want you to see two things in this difficult passage. One, that there is a real enemy in the world. There is a real enemy in the world. Secondly, which leads to a real evaluation of who you want to be in this world. Right? A real enemy that leads to a real evaluation of yourself. First of all, let's talk about the real enemy that's in the world. In this passage, we meet a character by the name of Haman. First time he's come up in the book of Esther. He is described in verse 10 simply as the enemy of the Jews. Haman is promoted above all the other officials, which, by the way, the reader is to infer that that honor should have actually gone to Mordecai. By the way, it reads. Because Mordecai, what happened right before it? Mordecai, who is Queen Esther's older cousin, but who has raised her as his own daughter when she was orphaned, Mordecai discovered a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And he reported it so that the king's life was saved. Now normally, such acts of loyalty like that would be handsomely rewarded by the king. With a promotion, right? With a promotion to a higher office with greater prestige and power. And even though Mordecai's good deed is actually recorded in the Chronicles of the King, it seems that the king forgot Mordecai. And he promoted Haman instead. Haman rises to power. He is actually given authority to act on behalf of the king. Right? He is given the king's very signet ring so that dealing with Haman is like dealing with the king himself. Which is why the people were expected to bow to Haman. To pay homage to him as if he were the king himself, his representative. So when when Haman comes to the king's gate, everyone bows down and pays homage to Haman, except for one, Mordecai. Everybody wants to know, why did Mordecai refuse to bow to Haman? Is he still bitter? Is he still salty that Haman was promoted instead of him? Some people really want this to be Mordecai's heroic moment, right? Where he finally resists all his life of compromise and he takes a stand in his Jewish faith and he refuses to bow the knee to anyone but God. But as tempting as it is to whitewash Mordecai, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think the real reason is given to us in verse 1 and in verse 4. Haman is described as an Agagite and Mordecai makes it known that he is a Jew. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the first and the fiercest enemies of the Israelites. 
They were actually the first people to attack Israel when she had just come out of Egypt and she was on the way to the promised land. And the manner of their warfare was to pick off, pick off the most vulnerable who were traveling in the back of the caravan. So the weak, the sick, women, children. The Amalekites were cruel terrorists. And therefore, they were the perennial, perennial enemies of the people of God. So this is just one more episode of this, of this war where a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites, Haman, squares off against Mordecai, who, by the way, if you remember, is a descendant of King Saul of the Israelites. Just hold on to that clue because that's going to be important later on in the story. But the point is, Mordecai is a Jew and Haman is an Amalekite and these two are mortal enemies. So Mordecai will never, ever, ever bow the knee to a Malachite. Friends, what happens next is, is, is mind-boggling. Haman is so furious of Mordecai's refusal to bow. He is so deeply, personally offended. He, deser- he decides it wouldn't be enough to just seek revenge on Mordecai alone. Instead, he goes bigger. He seeks to destroy all the Jews. All the people. Right? That... That escalated quickly, right? From a personal offense to full-out genocide. Haman goes to the king. He spins a story about a people who are scattered throughout his empire who do not obey the king's law, which is not true. Everybody's compromised, as we talked about last week. But he, he, he convinces the king that it is not in his best interest to tolerate these people anymore. And by the way, King Ahasuerus is once again shown to be so inept... <laughs> He never actually inquires who these people are. He never asks. And by the way, he unwittingly signs a death warrant that includes his own wife, Queen Esther, who's a Jew. So you've got to imagine this scenario, okay? Imagine that you are a Jewish family. On the eve of Passover, nonetheless, is when this edict goes out. You're preparing with your family to celebrate God's miraculous deliverance of your ancestors from the evil empire of Egypt when a courier shows up. An official courier arrives with an official letter sealed with the king's own ring, and you unfold it, and you read that, that he decrees that on one certain day, 11 months from now, all of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire are to be annihilated by their own neighbors and all their goods plundered. Friends, this is a purge. This is an ethnic cleansing. This is a state-sponsored genocide. And it's difficult to imagine, isn't it? But unfortunately, we can't imagine it because this plot has actually been on repeat throughout history, right? Even in our own times. From the Rwandan gen- genocide in 1994, when 800,000 Tutsis and Hutus were killed, that represented 20% of the entire population of Rwanda, 70% of the Tutsis living in Rwanda. To the Cambodian genocide in the 70s, where Pol Pot organized the mass killing of 1.7 million Cambodians. And then, of course, the Holocaust itself. Between 1941 and 1943, approximately 6 million Jews were killed. That was two-thirds of all the Jews living in Europe at the time. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world with real evil. 
real enemies, real danger. And oftentimes that evil is actually aimed directly at the people of God. What do we do with this, right? If you're a Christian in this room, what do you, how do you deal with this? Well, the New Testament tells us, it helps us, it tells us that there is, in fact, a war waging every day. But it also tells us that it is not against flesh and blood. That is, it is not against other human beings. That's not the real enemy. It says in Ephesians 6, our war is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It teaches us to identify who the real enemy is. It's not the ancient foe of the Amalekites, but the more ancient foe of Satan himself, the great enemy of God. His is the hidden hand behind all the evil in the world. His is the hand behind all the evil in Esther 3. He is behind all the evil because the scriptures say that his purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. Friends, we've got to learn to look behind the human characters to the source of the evil itself. And we have to know that Satan particularly wants to destroy the people of God. And he will often use human empires to try and do so, like he does in our passage with the Persian Empire. The New Testament teaches us to identify the tactics and strategies of our real enemy. And friends, there are some really, really interesting parallels in this passage, from this passage to our experience today as Christians. Think about it. Christians today are also expected to bow the knee, to pay homage to the cultural gods of the empire, whether it's the political god, or the identity god, or the pluralistic god. And if we don't pay tribute to someone's politics, or chosen identity, or the unwritten rule that all beliefs are equally valid, then we will be, it will be received as a personal offense, like Amon took it as a personal offense, right? right? These cultural idols around us, like Haman, they demand respect from everyone, from you. And if you, re- if you resist, if you refuse to bow the knee, so to speak, then you can expect to receive the brunt of the empire. There may even come a time when a very tolerant empire no longer tolerates Christians. Did you notice that was Haman's argument, wasn't it? It is no longer to the king's profit to tolerate them. Friends, Persia was a tolerant society. It was built that you could pursue your own religions, your own ways. It was a tolerant society, and yet all it took was one incident, and the tide turned. So it was no longer in the best interest of the empire to tolerate these people and their different beliefs, and their different practices. For us Christians, this has certainly been true throughout history in lots of places, and in in many places today throughout the world, that is true. The church is persecuted. Where the empire has decided it is not in their best interest to tolerate Christians. Friends, even here in our own country, we're not persecuted, necessarily. But where tolerance is the official stance of the empire. But Christians are less and less tolerated, aren't they? Sometimes it seems that we are tolerant of everyone but Christians. I find it very interesting that the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is headquartered right here in Madison, Wisconsin, 
I think it actually should be more accurately entitled the Freedom from Christianity Foundation. It's true. Like, I never see them making fun of Muslims or other religions on their sign. Just us, right? Just, just the Christians. Now, you've got to know, listen, we are not purely victims as Christians. And if you know me, I talk about this a lot. Christianity is the world's largest religion, and we have enjoyed a privileged status for a long time in certain parts of the world, and we have not always used that privilege or that power well. We have not used it rightly. We've compromised in so many ways ourselves. We failed to be the church that Jesus made us to be, so that we have earned some of the disdain that's aimed at us. We need to be honest about that. But I don't want you to miss the parallel in this passage. The empire demands that you pay homage to cultural gods, and if you refuse, it will no longer be in the interest of the empire to tolerate you. Brothers and sisters, the point is, there's real evil in the world because there is a real enemy to the people of God. And sometimes he works by turning the empire against you. Therefore, as Christians, we cannot afford to be naive about the spiritual war. In his book on Esther, uh, author Eugene Peterson draws the same conclusion that I am. He writes, wherever there is a people of God, there are enemies of God. The community of faith cannot afford to be innocent about Hamans, the Hamans of the world. A battle is in progress. That is a biblical fact. Brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to be innocent. That is naive. Because it does seem that part of Satan's strategy today is to keep us naive or ignorant of that there's a spiritual battle even going on. C.S. Lewis's uh, brilliant book, The Screwtape Letters, which, if you know, takes the form of letters between a senior demon named Screwtape to a junior demon in training named Wormwood. He's coaching him in the ways of the demonic. So listen to one of these letters sent to Wormwood about where Wormwood is asking, should he make the human assigned to him aware of his existence as a demon? So he writes, My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. The question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy, for the moment, is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. and Persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them. He therefore cannot believe in you. Or as the, the character played by Kevin Spacey in one of my favorite movies, The Usual Suspects, he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Brothers and sisters, why is this so important for us? Because as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, if you don't think he exists, if you're not aware that there is a battle going on, a spiritual battle, 
that you will not be clothed with the right armor to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Esther 3 is asking us to reckon that there is a real enemy in the world. But secondly, this leads to a real evaluation of who you want to be in this world. Like when you encounter real evil and real suffering in the world, it leads to an evaluation of what you really believe about God, about yourself, about what kind of person you want to be. I don't know about you, but one of the places where I am always the most sober, the most clear-headed, the most thoughtful, is when I'm at a funeral. Anybody else have this experience? There's something about the reality of death that shakes me out of my malaise and apathy. It makes me really think about what kind of life I want to be living. Because it appears that that's what, that what, that's what happens for Mordecai and Esther in this chapter. Again, I don't think Mordecai makes a heroic stand here, but I do believe this is a turning point for both of them in the book. Listen to how Eugene Peterson again puts it. He says, a, real, a realization that there is, in fact, an enemy forces a reassessment of priorities. The moment Haman surfaced, Esther began to move from being a beauty queen to becoming a Jewish saint. From being an empty-headed sex symbol to being a passionate intercessor. From the busy, indolent life in the harem to the high-risk adventure of speaking for and identifying with God's people. This is their turning point. And this real evaluation centers on two questions for Esther and for Mordecai and for us. The first question is, do I truly believe God's promises to be good to his people no matter the circumstances? And secondly, will I truly identify with God's people no matter the consequences? That's the evaluation they're making. Because remember, we, just, we heard it again in our passage. Up to this point, Esther has concealed her Jewish faith and identity. No one knows. No one in the citadel knows. Not even the king we're led to believe. Therefore, she has a real choice to make, doesn't she? She can stay silent. She can continue to enjoy the luxurious life of the palace. Or she can speak up and risk everything. Up until this point, Esther has just gone along with the flow throughout the whole book, almost like she has no choice. Like she had no choice whether to enter the king's harem, whether to marry a pagan king. So perhaps she could apply the same logic here. I, listen, I have no power. I have no choice. There's nothing I can do. I'm just, I'm just a little Hebrew girl who happened to become queen. Guys, we're going to see that, that Esther and Mordecai actually do choose to identify with and to stand with the people of God, no matter the consequences. But I want to put before you today that you have the same evaluation to make. Will you identify with the people of God, even if it makes you the target of the empire? Or will you keep quiet, just go along with the flow, maintain a comfortable life? Will you believe in the promises of God to never, start, never stop working for your good, no matter the circumstances you find yourself in? Brothers and sisters, I cannot explain the problem of evil. I can't explain why genocide is ordered here in Esther 3. I can't explain why it was actually carried out in the Holocaust. I can't explain why injustice happens every day. 
And I cannot explain why suffering has touched into your life so painfully. But here's, here's, what, I, here's what I do know. Here's what I can say with confidence, that you can trust God's promise to be good to you. You know how I know that? Because He has identified Himself with you. See, before you are asked to identify yourself with Him, no matter the consequences, He has identified Himself with you, no matter the consequences. This means, brothers and sisters, that God did not stand outside of human suffering, but He stepped inside of it, and He took it upon Himself as one of us. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from author Dorothy Sayers. She says this, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of the human experience, from the trivial trivial irritations of family life to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and he died in disgrace and he thought it well worthwhile. Or another one of my favorite quotes from the theologian John Stott. Stott said, I can never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? This is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Brothers and sisters, God identified with you by becoming human in Jesus Christ. By entering into the waters of baptism for you, though he had no sins to be washed of. By refusing to bow the knee to Satan in the desert, though he was offered all the empires of the world. He identified with us on the cross by taking the consequences of all of our evil upon himself. Friends, to be clear, he did not identify with us just to identify with us. But so he could take on our greatest enemy, And defeat him for us. He took the world's evil and sin and justice, suffering and pain upon himself so he could take that weight from us. So he could promise to give us that hope that he has started a new creation. And one day, one day, brothers and sisters, there will be no more tears. Moreover, he identifies with us by promising to be with us in our present sufferings now. Scripture says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Friends, he's identified with you. So in those moments when you doubt God's goodness, you can remember the cross. You can remember if God did not hold back his own son from you, is there anything he will hold back from you? How will he not graciously give you all things? He's identified with you at such a great cost so that you can identify with him no matter the cost. 
as Jesus himself said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So brothers and sisters, do not fear. Do not be afraid. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. Do not fear the enemy because the Lamb has overcome. And the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. And he promises at the end of time, if you had a scale, and on one side you piled up all of your sufferings and all of your miseries and all of your pain and heartache, and then on the other side you piled up all the glories that are to come, Scripture says that the glory is weightier. It's more significant. Because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. One of the famous stories from April and I's marriage is when we were in seminary. And when I was in seminary, I got excited about whatever we were studying at the time. And I would promptly come home and I would announce my bold plans to April. <laughs> it's a roller coaster ride. I'm sorry about that. So one week, you know, we were going to be frontier missionaries in the 1040 window. And then the next week, we we're going to work in an inner city, uh, in one of the harshest inner cities in the U.S. To be fair, church planting is the one thing that stuck in all of that. So, you know, something good came of that. But one week, a seminary professor told the class, <laughs> he told the class, that there had been plenty of people who went through the seminary and went on to become criminals who were convicted of crimes. We had never, ever, ever had one martyr yet. No one who had died for their faith. So I probably went home and I told April that we were called to be the first martyrs in RTS history. <laughs> it's sad. It's true, but it's, yeah. Friends, this, I mean, it's, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous now, but I, I kind of do miss that zeal of that person who said, I will suffer anything for the kingdom of God because my Christ has suffered so much for me. Today, I'm afraid I'm a little too comfortable. I'm a little too apathetic. I'm, I'm too fearful. And this passage for me this week has been so good to remember that there is a war going on. Not the cultural war, not the political war, the spiritual war. And it invites me and you to a real evaluation of who we want to be in this world. Will we believe in God's promises to seek our good always? Will we cast our lot with the people of God no matter what? Will we stake our hope that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again? And therefore, in the end, all must be well. All manner of things must be well. Let me pray and let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we know your scriptures tell us that, the, that we have an enemy. And that enemy comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I thank you that we have a conqueror. We have a lamb who has overcome, who says that he came to give us life and life more abundantly. Lord, show us what that abundant life looks like. Thank you, Jesus, for identifying with us. I pray you would give us the strength and the courage and the grace to identify with you, no matter the cost. And Lord, give us the grace to trust in you. 
that all things truly are working for our good. It's not just a saying, it's real. Give us eyes to see the hidden hand of God working even underneath the evil of the world. We ask this in the name of Christ.